Turn to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. One of the uh, things I was concerned about is this crackling on my mic, but it seems it's okay. One of the things I was concerned about when our family uh, purchased a bus recently was um, how bad the blind spots would be, right? Um, with a, a vehicle that big, with the windows, the size of it, would we be able to see? The rearview mirror is pointless. All you can see is if the kids are behaving or not. And so uh, on some recent travels, I've been really paying attention to uh, cars coming up behind me. I can see it in this mirror, and then I can see it in the little bottom mirror, and then, and then they're right there. And, and thankfully, I discovered over the last couple of weeks that um, the, the bus basically doesn't have a blind spot. It'd be very hard for us to uh, miss a car and just jerk over and run some poor little guy off the road in his tiny car. And uh, I'm grateful for that because, um, you know, kids driving soon and all those kind of things, they need to, to be safe. So while our bus doesn't have blind spots, uh, I wish it was that way in my life. I wish I didn't have blind spots. I wish I didn't have areas of my life where um, uh, I do things or I don't do things, and I'm not even aware of, of, of the damage or the hurt that it may cause people. And, and we all have that. Sometimes our blind spots might be things that we're actually good at, but we don't think we're good at. So we don't have confidence and boldness in that thing. And what we need is the body of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Word of God to come alongside of us and say, look, I see good things in what you're doing there. God's created you this way. He's gifted you this way. We benefit, the body benefits, our, our city benefits when you're using and operating in that giftedness and the way God's created you. So be bold and be confident in that. But oftentimes, we don't think of blind spots like that. It's usually where we're hurting someone, we're damaging someone, and we're not aware of it. And that's where we also need the body of Christ to come alongside of us. And we need the Word of God and the Spirit of God to be a mirror to us, to expose where we're doing those things and lovingly say, hey, brother, hey, sister, I don't know if you realize it or not, but this is actually hurtful. This is actually causing damage to relationships. And I love you enough to walk with you through this and not just point out your flaws. It was the same for the Corinthian church. They had a group of people in this church who had all kinds of knowledge. In fact, Paul mentions back in chapter 1, verse 5, that they were enriched in Christ in all speech and knowledge. So it's not as though knowledge is a bad thing. It wasn't a bad thing. The problem was... They misused their knowledge, misapplied their knowledge. Knowledge did not lead to humility and wisdom and edifying others, building them up, but their knowledge was leading to arrogance and pride and actually being unloving toward others. This is mainly who Paul is speaking to, these knowledgeable, stronger believers in chapters, in these three chapters we've been walking through for a few weeks, chapters 8, 9, and 10. Dealing with this issue mentioned back in chapter 8, verse 1, is it okay to eat meat or food offered to idols? Now, if you've been following the argument the last several weeks, it's like Paul's been building a case. His first point, while knowledgeable ones do know and say that idols aren't real gods, that there's only one God, so it shouldn't matter about eating this food that's been offered to these idols, their knowledge coupled with love will then care about the weaker brother who can't yet make that distinction. To the weaker brother, 
Eating that food offered to those idols, eating that food in those places meant he was practicing idolatry and he's left all that behind to pursue Jesus, but he's watching you do it stronger, brother, knowledgeable one, and you're confusing the issue for him. So out of love for him, Paul says, don't do it. In fact, if you do do it and you don't love your brother, then you're sinning against him and sinning against Christ. So follow my example, Paul says. Refuse to eat any meat if necessary to love your brother. That's chapter 8. His second point was more personal. Follow my example. See how I've given up freedoms and privileges like getting paid for the sake of the gospel being spread. See how Paul says I've in fact ordered my entire life around the spread of the gospel. I don't want to do anything that hinders the gospel getting to as many people as possible, freely proclaimed as possible. And so I have to live, Paul says, with discipline and self-control so I don't disqualify myself. I don't miss out on reward for proclaiming the gospel. And so... If, if, God, if Christ can do this in me, Paul's saying to the stronger, knowledgeable brothers, then he can do this for you as well. He can call you to this and enable this in you as well. So follow my example. That's chapter 9. His third point, and he just keeps building this case where it's, it's going to reach a climax next week, later in chapter 10. But his third point turns away from Paul as an example and turns to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament as an example of those who did not live with self-control and discipline. And those who did disqualify themselves from the race, who did miss out on blessing, who missed out on reward because of their sins. And the lesson they had to learn in Corinth and the lesson for us is that arrogance and pride can cause us to have blind spots to our spiritual blessings, can cause us to have blind spots to the destructive nature of sin, can cause us to have blind spots to the fact that we are arrogant, and can cause us to have blind spots to the faithfulness of God. To persist in that arrogance could bring God's judgment on us for our sins and our arrogance. It did for Corinth. We pray God have mercy on us that it won't be that way for us. Beginning in chapter 10, verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire as they did. We may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Father, how we do need you beyond what we are even perceptive of in ways we can't even ask or imagine. We need you. Father, we ask that you would 
bless us this morning with your presence, with your power, with your might, with your instruction, that you would teach us, that you would instruct us, that you would expose what needs to be exposed, that you would bring comfort and hope where it needs to be, there needs to be comfort and hope, and that we would hear from you. Father, bless us this morning with these things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you hear me? Yes? Okay. Back up. We're good to go. The first thing we see uh, is that the Corinthians were blind to their spiritual blessings. Paul opens using this family language, brothers. Now, we've seen throughout this letter that when Paul uses that family language, hey, brothers, hey, sisters, hard words are about to follow. He has to remind them of the relationship before he hammers them with truth. Now, I don't want you to be uninformed or unaware, he says. It's not that Paul really doesn't think they knew this, but their behaviors were demonstrating a lack of understanding. Do I have the facts? Yes. Am I applying the facts with wisdom? Apparently not. This is really important that you get this, brothers. And he refers to these Gentiles, mostly this church is mostly a Gentile church, not Jewish Christians. He refers to them as brothers and then refers to the Israelites, their Jewish ancestors, as our fathers. Paul understood the idea that the Gentiles were grafted into the spiritual covenantal people of God. So much so that the history of the Jews in the Old Testament was now their history. It's like adopting a child into your family. Your family's history and heritage now becomes their history and heritage. So that what you've received as a blessing is now their blessing. What you've received to pass on to other generations is now something for them to pass on to other generations. And this was true of the Gentiles. What are these blessings? Well, Paul mentions all, and notice that word all. They all were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Now, going back to our heritage, yes, our heritage as well, because we're all Gentile Christians in here, more than likely. Uh, We go back to God's covenantal people in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years beginning of the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And you can go back and read this. A lot of you know the story. You've seen movies that tell the story. And the people begin to call out to God for deliverance, and God hears them, has mercy on them, remembers his covenant with them, and sends a deliverer, Moses, to go and bring the people out. And Moses goes and leads the people out, not by the power of his sword, not by political persuasion, but by the power of God through these plagues that God brought on the people of Egypt to make a distinction between his people and those people. And Moses leads the people out, and they're headed to this land that God's been promising his people all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. But before they get very far, Pharaoh realizes, I've just lost about two million slave laborers. This is going to be a problem to the economic growth of Egypt. I need to go get them back. So he sends his army to get them back. And a lot of you know the story. They're pinned between the army of Pharaoh and the Red Sea. What happens? How do they get out of this? Again, God delivers his people, not through the power of man, but through the power of God. He sends a wind that parts the sea, and they pass through the sea on dry land. And he then sends a wind that causes the sea to crash down on top of Pharaoh's army and all the chariots and horses, thus wiping out the Egyptian army. And now, fully and finally, the people are delivered from Egypt. There'll be no more army to chase them down from Egypt. They are now God's people and headed to God's land. Of course, there's a lot more that had to happen in that story. But this is the language that Paul is referring to when he says 
these things that they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They're identifying with the leader of this new nation. Now, you won't find that language in the Old Testament. You can't go to the Old Testament and find out where they were baptized into Moses. Paul is using language the Corinthians, mostly Gentiles, would have been familiar with to help them grasp what was happening. What was happening in that story, their story. Paul is using that language to help them understand the significance of Israel being delivered through the Red Sea. Their final deliverance from Egypt and Pharaoh's power. God forming them as his people. And then he says, he lists their blessings. They ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Again, going back to their wanderings in the wilderness. How do you feed two million people in the wilderness? God literally made it rain down bread, manna, which would be collected by the people and formed into loaves of bread that they could eat. Six days a week this happened. And on the sixth day, they would gather enough for the seventh day, the Sabbath day of rest. And every day they woke up and there was food to eat on the ground. They had done nothing to produce. And they're thirsty. And so where do you provide water for all of these people in the wilderness? And God made Moses or called Moses to strike a rock. And from the rock flowed the water. And the Jewish tradition that Paul alludes to is that that rock actually followed them around. The well actually followed them around. Not, not that, you know, it was walking or floating but that they would carry it with them, and they would continue to drink from this fountain. Um, and, and this was part of their heritage as God's people. They're being grafted into the Jewish story. And so, again, Paul's drawing another conclusion that wouldn't have been obvious to the Israelites during the wilderness wanderers, but was obvious now that that rock was Christ. Drawing from Deuteronomy 32, where the word rock refers to the name of God only in that chapter, but throughout that chapter, Paul again equating Jesus Christ with the God of the Old Testament, showing their equality as God. Deuteronomy 32, the rock was God. Paul saying that rock was Christ. Same thing. The spiritual food that he refers to wasn't like magical food that the elves made in Lord of the Rings, but it was spiritual in the sense that it was provided by God. Miraculous provision. They didn't do anything to produce that. They didn't make water come from the rock. They didn't make manna rain down. Rain down. And so see the big picture. Paul is saying the Israelites experienced baptism into Moses through the cloud and the sea, and they shared in a meal of food and drink miraculously provided for them by God. Obviously, Paul is drawing the minds of the Corinthians to baptism and communion. Baptized into Moses, going through the, 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 the cloud present when Jesus was baptized. The, the presence of God speaking from the clouds. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Identifying with Christ as the Old Testament Jews were identified with Moses, their new leader. And then this food and drink, this Lord's Supper. In fact, this passage is the pivotal passage in establishing water baptism and communion as the only two ordinances in the Protestant church. You don't, you don't find explicit instruction on how to do it like you do in chapter 11 or in the Gospels. But it's inferred, and we learn much by what they do about what not to do throughout chapter 10. The big picture is this: God established His people through baptism into Moses in the Old Testament Exodus story, and sustained His people through His ongoing provision of food and drink. In the same way, church, we enter the church through the ordinance of baptism. Now we actually enter through the ordinance, through, through the, the experience of salvation, regeneration. We're born again. But how do we tell people that we've been born again in the local church? We're baptized through water baptism. That's how we declare to the local church, to the world, 
that we are identifying with Christ, that what is being pictured in this tank of water as we're lowered into the water and brought out of the water is the, the death, burial, and resurrection of us that we've experienced, that we now share with Christ. That though we were dead in our sins and transgressions, by God's grace, our mind and our eyes were open to that reality. And by God's grace, we saw that Jesus alone can save us from this, this, this judgment condemnation of God coming for us, apart from Christ. And he did. I'm trusting in Christ now. I'm made alive in Christ. I've come out of the water to walk in the newness of life, this new life that I've received. This is what baptism shows. I'm alive in him. I'm identifying with Christ and his people. Baptism is not a declaration that you're somehow perfect in Christ or you've achieved some level of spiritual maturity. Baptism is the initiation act. I'm just saying I'm in. That's all it is. It's a declaration to the body of Christ that you are alive in him and Christ is alive in you. It's so important. You can't hardly find any evidence of someone in the New Testament who claimed to be alive in Christ who wasn't baptized in water. The thief on the cross is the only example. The early church had no category for a follower of Christ who wasn't baptized in water. It's how we tell the church, how we tell the world we're in. It's so important. We require you to be baptized as a believer to be a member of this church. We require you to be baptized to share in communion every week. Because we're trying in every way that we can to ensure that everyone who is a part of the Crossing Church has been born again. That they are regenerate. And that they've made this public to the world. They've told people. And baptism shows that. And the communion shows this ongoing presence of Christ in the life of the church. It's, it's why we share in this meal every week. We don't ever want to gather together like this and not share in this meal that is a reminder of the ongoing presence and sustaining and satisfying uh, person and work of Jesus Christ that makes us community. It is the person and work of Christ that makes us a church. It's not that we have the same last name, or we live in the same city, or we like the same music, or we wear the same clothes, or we're the same age, or have the same skin color, or have the same jobs or economic levels. None of those things are what really unite us. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ that we share in common. And every week we share in this meal, it's a reminder. It's Christ and his life that sustains us. It's Christ and his life that nourishes us. It's Christ and his life that we find satisfying and enjoyable as the people of God. And just as the Lord miraculously provided this food and drink for his people to sustain them in the exodus, so Christ keeps providing this for us. He doesn't quit being alive. He doesn't quit supplying everything that we need. The, 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 the bounties of heaven are full, and he keeps raining them down on us every single day. But look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them... God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness, despite the fact that all of them had experienced those spiritual blessings. If you know the story in the Old Testament, you know that most of them, a vast majority of them, ended up with their bodies overthrown, or some of your translations may say scattered in the wilderness, just dying on the side of the road because of God's judgment on them for their sins and their failure to trust Him. They didn't get to enter the land that God had promised them. They didn't get to experience the full blessings of being God's people. Even though all of them had experienced these blessings. For Israelites, despite all that God had provided for them, all that deliverance and miraculous sustaining grace, they were not exempt from God's punishment or God's judgment. 
in the same way, Corinthian church, in the same way, Crossing Church, just because you've been baptized, just because you've joined a church, just because you share in the continued life of the church through communion, we are not either exempt from making a wreck of our lives through sin and experiencing God's judgment and punishment for sin in our lives. The Corinthians were blind to the true nature of these spiritual blessings. They knew they had them, but they didn't understand them. They didn't apply them to their life. They were counting on the fact they'd been baptized. They shared in this ongoing communion meal, almost like a spiritual good luck charm or a spiritual protection charm to keep them safe from the consequences of ongoing sin. I can continue to engage in these sinful behaviors. I'm safe. I'm a Christian. I've been baptized. I share in this meal. I'm protected. God won't let harm come to me. And Paul's very strong message to them was, you're wrong. They and us haven't been given these spiritual blessings to abuse them or to indulge in sin. They were given to make us a new people through whom the presence and glory of God would be revealed and proclaimed to the earth. They were given to make us a people who have been so transformed that we devote our lives to make his name known far and wide. That's why we've been blessed with baptism and why we're blessed with communion. I was watching a fascinating documentary a few weeks ago with a friend. It's called Style Wars. It was a a documentary from the early 80s that profiled graffiti artists in the early hip-hop culture in New York City and how these guys would bomb trains all over the city, primarily known for painting their names in kind of creative ways, but these guys had such an appreciation for each other that they would take pictures of each other's trains that they would bomb, and they would have little photo albums, and they'd get together and this before Instagram. They would talk about, hey, man, that's awesome, that work you did, and I like what you did on that train over there. It's a fascinating documentary. So when you see a train and it's got the name Scene or Scheme or Demon or Dandy or Taki 183, you know that is the work of that artist proclaiming his name and his image all over that train, all over the city of New York. They take great pleasure in seeing each other's trains travel to the city with their artwork on it. And in a much greater way, the image of God has been painted in us and on us renewed and restored as a new creation in Christ so that when our lives are seen, enjoying, and experiencing the spiritual blessings of being God's people, other people see our lives and they know the work of the artist. God's doing this work in them. God's making them that kind of people. There's no other explanation for this. Why do they do what they do? Why do they serve? Why do they love? Why do they give? Why do they go? Why do they spread the name and fame of Christ in the city? It's because the artist is doing this work in us. He's transforming us and making us this people. We can't take credit for this. Unless we are blind. Unless we see these spiritual blessings as something that somehow we have earned or we have deserved. And they're not solely by His grace for His glory. Unless we treat these spiritual blessings we receive not as humble, grateful recipients but as bratty, privileged, spoiled trust fund kids. Do you realize, church, all you've been given in Christ? Do you realize who you are? Do we realize what we're going to inherit and what is waiting for us and all that our Father in heaven is willing to give us to enjoy Him and make His name known? God, open our eyes and help us to see all the spiritual blessings we've received by your grace 
so that there's no way we would abuse or squander them. There's no way we would puff up our chest in arrogance and pride and say, well, of course, of course he gave them to us. Look how amazing we are. God, help us to be grateful in response and worship and devotion to you. The Corinthians were blind to that, strong Corinthians, the knowledgeable ones, the arrogant ones. Secondly, the Corinthians and we, in turn, must be careful not to be blind to the dangers of sin. Beginning in verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written that people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Interesting choice of words the Holy Spirit gave Paul to use. These things happened in the Old Testament as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. And these four examples or types were given to highlight the kind of evil desires that they had in the wilderness wandering, desiring for worshiping idols and sexual morality and testing the Lord's patience and grumbling. You can go back and read those stories in the Old Testament, places like uh, Exodus 32, the golden calf that uh, the Israelites had Aaron make as Moses uh, uh, labored on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and took too long and they got tired of waiting. So we're going to make our own God. Or or Numbers 21, when the people were grumbling and complaining about God and God sent fiery serpents to to, to strike them and to kill them, and they were only saved by looking at the bronze serpent that God instructed them to make. Or Numbers 11 or Numbers 14, times when God's people openly practiced sin and rebellion and were punished by the Lord as a consequence of them turning away from Him to chase sin. It's also interesting how the Holy Spirit led Paul to use those four examples because in some way they were all related to eating and drinking, which is the issue that he's dealing with in the Corinthian church beginning in chapter 8. eight. These Israelites, again, who had all received these spiritual blessings, were punished and judged by God and experienced awful consequences for their sins because some of them chose to pursue evil and did not desire the Lord. They presumed that they could do whatever they wanted as God's covenant people, and there were no consequences for disobedience. There were no consequences for doing life their way and not God's way, and they then missed out. They suffered. The exact same thing was happening to the Corinthian Christians who were, as we've already seen and will see even more in chapter 11, were allowing incredible sins to exist within their body of believers, like sins that are so bad that we often in the Corinthian church have to go back and remind ourselves these are Christians. Because at times you, you don't think that they possibly could be. And church is the same with us. If we have any area of our life in which we are harboring sins, indulging in sin, playing with sin, we are playing a dangerous game. It might be the same sins the Israelites in the Old Testament the Corinthians were indulging in, idolatry, loving someone or something more than God, desiring someone or something more than God. Every single person in this room is tempted constantly to love someone or something more than God. It's a battle we all face. Unless we're blind to that. If we say we don't, we're blind. If you say you don't struggle with idolatry, you're blind. You do. There are definite things in your life that you struggle to love more than God. 
Our hearts are always chasing after that. For someone or something to find hope in or enjoy or find peace and security in more than God. Maybe it's the sin of sexual morality, playing around with pornography or explicit sexual images in movies or music or online. Thinking that it's not doing damage to our heart and soul. Thinking we have it under control. It's just our little pet we keep over in the corner of our room that we don't let, or in the corner of our phone that we don't let anybody else know about. I have it under full control. Or maybe flirting with or allowing someone, uh, allowing yourself to get emotionally attached to someone other than your spouse. Or maybe it's just hooking up with someone as a single, believing the lie that sex is just a physical act that doesn't affect your heart, soul, and mind. Or it could be testing the Lord, presuming upon His grace, growing impatient, waiting for Him to work. Well, you're not doing anything, so I'm going to do it. I'm going to make this happen. He'll let me do it. He loves me. He won't stop me. I can't wait on him. I've got to act. Or maybe it's grumbling and mumbling your way through life, using your voice and tongue not to sing and see and sing of his grace and worth, but griping and complaining because of what you don't have, can't have, or want, but don't get. This is not an exhaustive list. It's representative. When you really think about what those sins are, it's amazing how much we struggle with that as a church. Unless we're blind. Please don't be blind. Please hear the Spirit of God speaking this morning. Even though we're God's people who have experienced His spiritual blessings, we still have these struggles. And I think we need to be careful because in our effort to enjoy the grace of the gospel and to enjoy the security of our standing as a son and daughter of our Father in heaven who is secure in Christ... We have to be diligent for that not to lead to a casual attitude towards sin. How does your father feel about you in heaven? He sees you in Christ. You are a dearly loved son and daughter of your father in heaven. How many times have we said that? The response to that reality, which is true, how your father feels about you in Christ is always the same. We can't earn more of his love. We don't lose any of his love. The response to that is not, oh, man, good. I can do what I want. I'm good. I'm safe. He's not going to quit loving me so I can have fun. There there are people in our camps who have, through the years, used that truth and reality of our secureness in Christ to openly and brazenly enjoy sin. Telling people. I've had people tell me stories. I've had people tell me. It's okay, man. Once saved, always saved. Do what I want. Have fun, man. Now, in one sense, it is true. If you truly are in Christ and Christ is truly in you, you are his forever. But that doesn't mean we're protected from the consequences of our sinful choices. It doesn't mean that we can make a wreck of our lives and the lives of those around us. I mean, really, for for the man or the woman who, who cheats on their spouse and loses their marriage and their family, is there any solace in the fact, oh, well, at least I'm still a Christian? Does that make anybody feel better? We aren't spared the consequences just because we've received the spiritual blessings of the Lord. If we take those spiritual blessings and squander them and abuse them to indulge in sin, we will experience the passive wrath of God. He will allow us to chase it. And it may end up in us losing our lives as it happened in the Corinthian church. This is what Paul's dealing with here. He's disqualification at the end of chapter 9, as we, as we mentioned last week, doesn't mention, mean you lose your salvation, but you lose your opportunity for reward and blessing of the Lord in your life. 
The Israelites were still God's people as they're dying in the wilderness. They just didn't get to experience God's promised land. They're still his people. Here it's the same. God's people missing out on the reward and blessing that God promised to his people in the Old Testament. In the Corinthian church, even those who are dying in their sins in chapter 11, Paul uses the language that they fell asleep, which is language Paul always uses in reference to Christians who die. So we're not talking about losing salvation here. We're talking about losing the joy of your salvation, the blessings of obedience. Like I hope and pray we get this, that we've been blessed by God through Christ to live an obedient, devoted life to Christ. And the result of that is joy, blessing, and experiencing the abundant, full life of Christ that Christ came to give. And all of that can be cut off and missed out on if we choose to chase evil like the Israelites did and some in Corinth were doing. And it could, if persisted in, continued in, never turned away from, it could, in fact, prove that you're not really a believer. That you've just been religious and pretending. Like, seriously. Sometimes the only way we end up knowing someone hasn't truly come alive in Christ or has been converted is because one day they walk away. They quit, they quit going with us. They were with us. They seemed to be part of us, the church. And then one day they were no longer of us because they were never really part of us. 1 John 2 talks about that. Even to such a degree as Matthew 7 reveals, there would be those who stand before Jesus one day, believing they are his, believing they did all of this work for him, miracles and prophecies and demons casting out in his name, and Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And I would declare to them, I never knew you. It's an incredible deception. And these kinds of passages are throughout the New Testament, purposed by God to help us not be blind to the destructive nature of sin and to draw his children back to their desperate dependence on him. Like if you feel a little little uneasy, that's okay. How will you respond? Not into further hiding and shame and sin, But again, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Whenever your sin is exposed, whenever your lack of faith is exposed, you run to Jesus. That is evidence you are His and that He is yours. Maybe it'll be for you today the first time that you've truly come alive in Him. Today is the day of your salvation. Maybe for you it is the 10,000th time. All of it is evidence that you are His. Heed the words of the apostle in verse 12, chapter 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. They were blind to the true nature of their spiritual blessings. They were blind to the destructive nature of sin. Thirdly, they were blind to their own arrogance. This is why it is so much harder for a religious person to come alive in Christ than for a pagan person outside of the church. This is why the gospel moves so slowly in a culture where over well over 90% of the people claim to be Christians. Jesus said, I came not for those who think they are well, but I came for the sick, those who know they're not. Those who know they need help. The absolute wrong response to this passage or any passage we walk through as a church is, oh, I'm good, I'm fine. That's never the right response. 
I don't need to hear this. I got it. But I know other people who do. I wish they were here today. Let me give you a list. Do you think you could send this podcast to them? Guys, it's not that we don't live without assurance and confidence. We do. An entire book of the Bible, 1 John, was written that we would know that we're His. But where is your assurance and confidence placed? If it's in your performance, this verse is for you. Verse 12, take heed lest you fall. Look how good I am. Look how much I've grown. Look how much better I am than those people at this. I'm here today. Where are they at? Vacation? Oh, what kind of Christian takes a vacation? No matter how much we think we've grown in Christ, our confidence and assurance is still in Christ above anything that our performance could ever produce. In fact, the more your hope and confidence and assurance is rooted in Christ and not your performance is a great indication of how much you've grown. The more it's in yourself and the more you think you don't need these reminders about the dangers of sin, the more precarious your position is. The reality is we still sin. The reality is sin is incredibly destructive and dangerous. Never to be something to play around with. Those are true. How do you respond to that? Oh, well, that's not my problem. I got it under control. Do you? Do you? Maybe we should ask your spouse. Maybe we should ask your kids. Maybe we should ask your coworkers or your friends. There's not a single Christian who has wrecked their lives in sin who started out to wreck their lives in sin. None. There's not a single pastor who was gung-ho to go to seminary and be a pastor who said, I can't wait to that day 20 and 30 and 40 years from now when I can stand before my church and resign in disgrace because I've cheated on my wife. It's not a single one. It always starts small. Compromises and justifications are made and it grows and the hiding continues and then one day the destroyer has come and caused chaos chaos and havoc. Heed these words, church. There is a place for holy trembling and the fear of the Lord. There is a place to not be casual in the presence of God. Because we are in our bodies the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, we should never be comfortable or casual about our sins. Does the Spirit of God have your attention in this passage this morning? Are you feeling the weight of this warning that Paul intended for us to feel? If you don't, it might be because you're blind. Well, let's also feel the glorious joy and freedom of God's faithfulness, which these strong, knowledgeable Christians were blind to. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. Now, this verse is often misunderstood, misapplied in our culture especially. In fact, if you spend a lot of time around religious people, this is a a great gospel opportunity because eventually you're going to hear a church person or, or maybe somebody even unchurched say something like, well, you know the Lord never gives you more than you can handle. 
And it's this verse they're referring to that's been misapplied, taught to them, or they've misunderstood. What they're always referring to are trials and, 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 and hard times. Well, it's not going to get that bad because God never gives you more than you can handle. What this verse is clearly about is temptation to sin and rebellion against God as God's people. The reality is God is always, always giving us more than we can handle, so we will run to Him. He's always knocking out our crutches and crushing our supports, so we will fall on Him alone. He's always exposing anything or anyone that we're trusting and loving more than Him. And He will do that through trials and hard times. That's another sermon for another day. But if you hear someone say that, then say, where is that in the Bible? And if they go to this verse, you can say, well, it's interesting that you said that, because it actually means this. The point of the verse is how the Lord helps us when we face temptation to sin. And this key doctrine here is the faithfulness of God. He is a rock. He is steadfast. He is unmovable. He is unchangeable. The hope we have as his children in 2018 is how God has acted toward his people in the Exodus, in the church in Corinth, and today and the rest of our lives is the same. He does not change. We're not going to wake up one day and God's going to be like, let me change the rules to make it more interesting. How he's always acted toward his people will always be how he acts toward his people. And his faithfulness is not just extended toward faithful people, like when we get our act together and we're faithful enough, then he's faithful to us. No, it's extended toward sinful people, people who are not faithful to him, which is us. In other words, God still believes in you and the work that he is going to accomplish in you, even when you and I don't believe in him. When we walk away from him, he doesn't walk away from us. When we love sin more than him, he still loves us more than we'll ever love him. And the hope of the passage is there's never a temptation that you and I will face that hasn't been faced by other humans, so you're not alone. You've, Jesus himself is a great sympathizing high priest. He's been tempted in every way that we've been tempted. Not the same specific temptations, but the same allure to the flesh, the same desires of the flesh he was tempted in. Every single temptation can be avoided. Sin does not have to happen in our lives. It does. It will. This is the, we still have the possi- but we still have the possibility to say no to any sin, which doesn't create a doctrine of sinless perfectionism, but it reveals that the power of sin has been broken in our lives. The power of sin has been broken. Sin does not rule and reign over you, Christian. You don't have to sin. You can say no to any and every sin. Before Christ, we were simply slaves to sin, couldn't help but sin. Even the good things we did apart from Christ were tainted by sin. But in Christ, we do the works he's ordained that we would do for his praise and glory. Our actions can be so of Christ that others see and praise Christ for what we do. We make God look good through our actions when we're living out the image of God that's been renewed and recreated in us in Christ. It's amazing. Us can make God look glorious. Our actions can make God look glorious. And one way this is made manifest is when we say no to temptation. And our faithful God is always working to help us do that, always providing a way out. This would make a good discussion this week in your families, in your missional communities, in your DNA groups. What does the battle with sin look like in your life? What are the triggers for those temptations? 
How do you see God providing a way out when those temptations come? Sometimes it might be avoiding certain people or activities together, altogether. Sometimes it might be calling on someone to help you when you feel the trigger showing up. Often it's when we're tired physically, emotionally, or we're stressed, or maybe we're excited and we want to celebrate some crazy ways. All those times make us more susceptible to temptation. So how can you handle those seasons of our life being on guard and looking for the escape hatch and not just caving into the temptation? This is part of our growth and maturity as believers and as a church, not to hide our battles from each other, but to bring to the body of Christ our battles so the light can shine on them, that we can see we're not alone. Alone, we mostly cave. Together, we can fight and resist the desires of the enemy to destroy us. Like, seriously, isn't it in isolation when most of the destructive stuff happens? Let's bring it to the light and let the Word and let the Spirit and let the body of Christ help us fight. God is for you, church. He is faithful, church. He knows you at your worst. You're not hiding anything from Him. But what does He do when He sees us at our worst? Recoil in horror? Oh my gosh, what are they doing? No, he comes for us, comes to provide a way out, comes to provide his grace, mercy, and love, comes to surround us with the body of Christ, comes to overwhelm us with his love so that we won't be destroyed by sin. This is our faithful God, always fighting for us, always helping us to find a way out, even when we have made a mess of our lives. He doesn't quit. Never ever in our entire lives does he give up on us. He who began a good work in you will complete it. For it is God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure. When sin entered creation, he didn't wipe his hands of us and just start over. He came down, he entered the mess, paid the price to redeem us, and is always and forever working to transform us and conform us as his people. He is faithful. He is with us. He is never going to give up on us, never going to quit on you. He's never going to say to you, well, you've gone too far, I can't help you anymore. No, he's here today. He has you here today with this passage demonstrating his love for you in the battle that you're in. Don't run from me, he says. Run to me. I'm ready. Arms up and wide. That's who I am, your Father in heaven. Father, I thank you so much. You have demonstrated to us, your people, this amazing character in nature. When we're faithless, you're faithful. When we run from you, you run after us. Your plans are not to destroy us or crush us, but to give us life. So help us this morning to heed this warning about the destructive nature of sin, about the the destructive nature of prideful arrogance. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. Help us to humble ourselves before you. And help us to receive from you everything that we need. Your word, the spirit, the body of Christ, the presence of Christ. To live as your people in this world. I pray for anyone here who's never come alive in Christ. I pray that today would be the day of their salvation as they turn from sin and they trust in Jesus for the first time. I pray for all of us to do that once again. To have our hearts renewed for him. Bless us as we respond in worship. Pray in Jesus' name.